and welcome to the Crossing Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for listening. We're glad you've connected with us. Our hope is that God speaks to your heart in a new way through this message. If you're new to the Crossing Church, please feel free to reach out to us by visiting our contact page or by paying us a visit. We would love to meet you. This week's sermon podcast begins in three, two, one. Well, good morning. We're glad that you are here with us in the midst of the dog days of summer, right? Let me just add my, uh, my voice to the chorus that we've been hearing from people who attended this week at the summit. We had a great time. We had a full house. We met a lot of new people, a lot of first-time folks who attended the summit. It was wonderful, and our volunteers were magnificent. The folks from our church, they did such a, such a great, great job, and I thank each and every one of you. Uh, you know, I, I tried to get around to most of you, but you just did a fantastic job. It was a great experience. That's why we do it every year. It's our gift to our community, the Global Leadership Summit. We do come to the end of uh, our series that has been going on for quite a while. It's called... Uh, Close Encounters. That's right. It's right in front of me. I forgot for a minute, but it's sitting right in front of me. Close Encounters. And it's, it's been a great series. And we know that Jesus told stories, but he didn't tell stories just to tell stories. He told stories to get a larger purpose across. And I was thinking this week as we looked at this passage of uh, the 10 virgins of Matthew 25 that Gene just read for us. Do you remember the 1990 film Home Alone? It's a family, the McAllisters, and the night before their flight to Paris for a Christmas holiday, they gathered at their home and they eagerly prepared for their trip. They were leaving the next morning, taking a flight out, and their son, Kevin, played by Macaulay Culkin, is ridiculed by his siblings and by his cousins, and there's a big fight with his older brother, Buzz, and Kevin is sent to the third floor of the room, uh, third floor of the house, where he wishes his family would just disappear. Well, he was soon going to get his wish come true. During the night, a power outage happens and resets all the alarm clocks and causes the entire family to fall asleep. And in the confusion and in the rush, if you've ever been late to the airport, you freak out, right? It's like, and then there's always traffic, and there's always a guy going 10 miles under the speed limit in front of you, and you know, you're running out. And so in the confusion and the rush to get to their flight on time, Kevin is left behind, sleeping. And it's not until they're already airborne that they realize that uh, they left someone from their own family behind, a situation that would make any parent absolutely freak out. If you know the movie, then you know he meets up with a couple of bungling burglars, and he thwarts their plans by setting up various booby traps. And in the end, he's reunited with his mother, who comes back, and the rest of the family. It's funny. It's entertaining. It's Hollywood. All's well that ends well, right? Right? Well, we end our series, Close Encounters, the stories he told, shaping the stories we live with a story about some folks who got caught sleeping at the very worst possible moment. Now, if you were to read this script, if a uh, first century screenwriter read this script, they'd probably make it into a, you know, into a comedy, into some sort of comical farce that would probably delight his first century audience. But in this story, for these participants... The results were not funny. In fact, the results were disastrous. Gene Lupo just read for us a story from Matthew chapter 25 about a wedding. But it wasn't about a wedding. Again, Jesus was telling a story to get across a larger point. What he was talking about was his eventual return to earth to establish his earthly kingdom. And here's the message he wanted them to get. 
Even though sometimes it seems as though it's never going to happen, Jesus one day will come back. And when he does, he will set the record straight. And when he does, he will dry every tear. And justice, as Amos says, will roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. And the world that we know as it stands today will be no more. But here's the disastrous part. Jesus said, Jesus said, he's not taking everyone with him. All's well that ends well for some, but not for everyone. Some people, it seems, just slept too long and as a result, were not prepared. Increasingly, many people question it. The bodily return of Jesus Christ is not a point that the Holy Scriptures is ambiguous or unclear about. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is just about, you know, he spent 40 days after his resurrection, and he's just about to take off and go to heaven, to, to the present heaven, and he's standing there with his disciples, and, and all of a sudden he goes, and they're looking up into the clouds. I mean, imagine being there, and they're looking, and they're kind of straining their eyes, and all of a sudden, a man in white, an angel appears before them. He says this in Acts 1, 11, of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, listen, will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. The same way he went, he's coming back. And folks, it sounds all very clear to me. Some things about the topic of Jesus Christ's return can be very confusing, but there's one thing that is not hard to understand at all. And this is it. Jesus is coming back. Now, in the beginning of Matthew chapter 24, the chapter before the one we're looking at this morning, it tells about Jesus with a little private moment with his disciples. Jesus had a lot of private moments with his disciples. And he's instructing them on a mountain, the Mount of Olives, and they're asking him about the destruction of Jerusalem and about the signs of the end of the age. So they said to him, good question, when is this going to happen? You always want to prepare, right? When is this going to happen? When is the end of the age going to happen? Is there any signs that you can give us? So Jesus started to let them in on it. And he said, starting in verse 5 of chapter 24, he let him in on a lot of things. He said, there's going to be a lot of false prophets, really, really good false prophets, who are going to deceive many, many people. Nations are going to rise up against nation in an unprecedented fashion. There will be a major uptick in wars. One of the speakers at the Global Leadership Summit on Friday said that if you spun a globe around, you know, the one you got in your desk, and you close your eyes and you put your finger down, if it didn't land in water, if it landed on a landmass, it's very probable that you would have put your finger down on a spot that right now is having a regional conflict or a war going on this very, very minute. Jesus also said, if you're not in the midst of a war, you're going to be freaking out because there's going to be rumors right across the border that a war is going to start around you. There's going to be an increase in natural disasters like earthquakes and tsunamis and things like that. And, and God's people will be persecuted in a way that they have never been persecuted before. Hated by all nations, killed in large numbers. He also said that because of the magnetic lure of the world and the increase in wickedness, that the love of God's people will grow cold. Many who once loved Christ will begin to love him mostly in theory because they've been lured away by the ease of wickedness. 
It won't be hard, Jesus said, to sin anymore. And then he said, but the gospel is going to be preached all over the world. And then the end will come. And ever since then, people have been enamored with figuring out and flirting with the day and flirting with the hour. But as he continues, we see that Jesus' intent is not to give a date. It's not to give an hour. His intent was to give a warning that he could return at any moment and they needed to be ready. They should be preparing for that day. And his return will be, he says in verse 42 of chapter 24, it's going to be like a thief in the night. He's not equating Jesus to a thief, but he's equating him to how a thief operates. If if a thief called you on his cell phone at 2 a.m. and said, look, this is the West Side burglar you've been reading about in in the paper. Your neighborhood is next on my list. And you know what? I'm in my early 50s now. I hate climbing up ladders and trying to jimmy windows open. Could you open up a window on the first floor? I'll be there in about a half hour. Now, if you ever got a call like that, I got to tell you, number one, he'd be a very uh, unsuccessful burglar. But I'm sure that at 2.30, there would be several uniformed officers waiting for him and waiting to greet him. See, a thief comes secretly. Verse 44 says this, so you also must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. When Jesus returns, he'll come like a thief in the night. You say to yourself, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This This is a little weird. He just telegraphed when he would return a few verses before, and now he says when he returns, don't be surprised because there's going to be a lot of people who are surprised. But that really should not shock us. We have a way of seeing all the signs setting up in front of our eyeballs every single day. When the day of reckoning comes, it could be you know, a test, it could be a project at work, it doesn't even matter. All of a sudden, the day comes, and, and we say to ourselves, it was all there, it was right in front of me. We were told... We got used to things the way they were. I became complacent. I didn't heed the warning. Now I'm in trouble. Scientists know that it's a matter of time before a major earthquake dubbed the big one. Isn't there a movie out now about, about California? There's a movie out, right? I got to go see. Anyway, it's, it's, called the, you know, it's called the big one, this earthquake that is coming. They say it's going to devastate the California coastline. But when is the big one going to strike? U.S. Geological Survey seismologists say that what is known as the Ring of Fire is becoming more active, and the California coastline sits right along it. And yet, does anybody here doubt that when it comes, people are going to be caught sleeping and going, what happened? Right? You know that's going to happen. Now, All that is a setup to the three stories that Jesus tells in chapter 25, the first of which, only the first of which we're going to be looking at this morning. The point is to be ready because Jesus is coming. He is returning. Jesus is coming back to receive those who have prepared for his coming. But listen, only those who have prepared for his coming. Why do people end up missing his coming? Why do they miss it? Why, why are so many people asleep? Why are so many people unprepared? Even in the church, even in Christ's church, unprepared. You know, what puts us to sleep? How did we get to sleep? What put us to sleep? How are we ever going to wake up? How can I prepare for his coming? Look, I want to answer just two questions this morning in the, the time we have left. How can I miss his coming? 
And how can I prepare for it? Okay? How can I miss his coming? How can I prepare for it? How can I miss his coming first? Well, the short answer is I fall asleep. That's the short answer. I want to give you a little background to the marriage customs because when Gene was reading that, you're going, this is weird. I don't get it. Uh, and who cares? There's probably there's some lesson there for me. But you know what? You really can't get it unless you understand, again, Jesus didn't write the Bible to us. He wrote it to a different audience. He wrote it for us, but not to us. They got it. We don't get it. We don't, we don't understand the whole thing, you know, the ten virgins and the lights and all this stuff. So basically, this is, what, this is what it all sets up. There are two basic stages of any relationship. There was the betrothal period and there was the wedding, you know, the ceremony. Now, the betrothal stage involved choosing a spouse. Many times, the mom and dad would choose a spouse between the ages of uh, uh, 13 and 18. I know kids freak out today. They go, oh, gee, wouldn't that be horrible if something like that happened Eh, maybe not. Maybe not so horrible. Anyway, between the age of 13 and 18, mom and dad picked out a spouse for their child, and then a formal prenuptial agreement was struck before witnesses, and it basically it said uh, they're going to be married one day, and it was a formal agreement. It was, now, you need to know this. It was a legally binding contract. Whenever you hear, you know, Tom and Jane, oh, they broke up. Weren't they engaged? Yeah, that's sad. That's sad. But then everybody goes their own way. Sometimes she keeps the ring. Sometimes she runs away. And sometimes she gives it back. Whatever. It doesn't matter. But the authorities don't get involved. See, this was a legally binding contract. And at this stage, the groom's family would give a, a gift to the bride's family, sort of, you know, kind of sealing the deal. And a dowry, a gift to the bride's father, was given to the couple to help them in their future life, to get going, Right? About one year after this formal agreement, the ceremony took place, the wedding ceremony. And dressed in special wedding garments, the bridegroom and companions went in procession from his home, from the groom's home. They all gathered, all the guys gathered at the groom's home. And they went in procession to the bride's home where the ceremony was going to be carried out. Now, after the formal ceremony at the bride's house, uh, after they were formally married, the groom, his buddies, the bride, and the bridesmaids all went back to the groom's house where the DJ was setting up, the food was being prepared. That's where the reception was held. Now, most times, and this is very important, most times the reception began at twilight when the sun was going down. I don't know why. I just know that's what they did, but I don't, I don't know why. It was dark by the time the reception started. Now, the procession back to the groom's house was led by the bridesmaids. And since it was getting dark, they would lead the procession with torches. The torches were, you've seen torches, you've seen all the movies, right? They're torches, but they were covered with kind of like a dome-shaped bowl or container. It was, it, it, it was a lamp. The light came from the lamp from oil-soaked rags that were placed inside this kind of bowl. And when they reached the groom's parents' house, it was party time. And the wedding festivities would often, often last an entire week at that house when the friends and relatives would come and they would dance the night away. How'd you like to have all your relatives at your house, all of them for a week? How'd you like that? Hey, you got to feed them too. Now, part of all that, that Jesus, okay, the part that Jesus is using, the story I just told you, there's only one part that he's using for this illustration, for the story. The part that he's using for this illustration is the part where the bridesmaids are waiting at the bride's homes for the arrival of the groom and his buddies for the formal wedding. Now, remember, the bridesmaids are the keeper of the lamp. They are the keepers of the light. 
They were the ones who led the whole procession back to the groom's house for the reception. They held the outdoor torches, which once lit could last, usually lasted a couple of hours. And if the groom was from the other side of town or from another town, uh, it might be a very long walk back there. So they would bring containers of oil to replenish the rags that were inside that held the oil, you know, that they would light and would give light along the way. Now, in preparation for the guy's arrivals, the bridesmaid would light the lamp and would station them outside the house. So they, the wise virgins, were prepared for what may be a long wait. They didn't know how long it was going to be. Uh, they didn't know exactly when he was coming. They didn't get on their cell phones and say, we'll be there in an hour, be there in an hour and a half. Maybe they were coming from the other side of town. Maybe they were coming from another town. We'll be there, you know, in a half hour, okay? That didn't happen. They might be there in 20 minutes. They might be there in six hours. Jesus indicates that the groom takes longer than expected because the text in verse 5 indicates that they all fell asleep. The entire contingent of bridesmaids at first was so excited that they couldn't sit down that all of a sudden their eyes started to get heavy and someone said, well, let's bring out some coffee. Let's serve some, you know, low-fat, low-carb raisin cakes. And pretty soon you see Rachel sitting over on the couch and her eyes start to flutter and they start to close and her mouth opens up and just, you know, in the corner of her mouth she's got this little thing forming in their eyes, you know, and they all eventually fell asleep. But all of a sudden, at midnight, there's a commotion. And one of them looks, and they squint. And they look all the, all the way through town, all the way to the other end, down the block. And they seem the groom and his buddies. They think it's the groom and his buddies coming. And they're hitting each other and knocking each other and pushing each other into the neighbor's bushes and just generally taking time, coming down the block and having a good time. Great, they're here. So immediately they jump up, they straighten themselves, you know, and do whatever they got to do in front of the mirror, and they grab their lamp, and they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're the holders of the lamp, and they go out to meet the bridegroom and escort him into the house, and then the ceremony would lead across town or to the next town, to the groom's house, where the partying would get underway. So they grab their contained outdoor torches, and lo and behold, the flames which were like this are now like this. And by the time they are halfway to the groom's house, they know their lights will be run out. See, half of them didn't prepare properly. They didn't bring the extra oil. So while the wise half of the bridesmaids trimmed their lamps, trimming their lamps, made, they put more oil on it. I don't know how they did it, but they put more oil in the rags. They added oil to those burning rags, getting them all ready. The others are now realizing that they have made a huge mistake by not bringing an extra jar of oil to re-wet the strips of cloth inside the lamps. And they start to freak out. Oh, no. What are we going to do now? Esther. Please, give me some of the oil from your extra bit so I could fill my lamp, please. No way. No way. If I do that and we start across town, we're all going to run out of oil then. We, none of us will have enough. We'll all be in the dark. It's not going to last a little trip across town. So one of them says, well, look, down the block, you know, the, the guys are still picking out branches out of their hair. Go down the block and buy some oil from old man Silverstein. He'll sell you some oil. So, you know, they pick up their skirts, they run, they knock on the door, and he's going, what time is it? It's midnight. Why are you coming on my door? So they go in, and finally, he sells them oil, but they run back as fast as they can. But in the meantime, the entire procession has already left. They say, I don't believe this. 
So they pick up their skirts and they run toward the groom's house. And when they get there, the door is shut. So very politely at first, and then frantically, they start knocking and then banging on the door. And finally, someone opens it just a crack, and the light of the room filters out into the darkened front porch. And they say, hey, buddy, uh, let us in. We're, we're part of the wedding party. We're supposed to be in there. Could you just let us in? And the person opens the door just a bit more, and they realize it's the bridegroom. And they say, oh, sir, please let us in. You know we're part of the bridal party. You don't understand. We, we belong in there. Just, just let us in. But the bridegroom takes a deep breath and says, in effect, in verse 12, no, you don't understand. As far as I'm concerned, I don't even know you. Because they were asleep, they missed it. They missed it. The thing is, now, as you know, I'm looking through this this week, and I'm, you know, trying to figure out what the, what the deal is. The thing is, I kind of understand what happened to them. <laughs> it was dark. It was late. It was past time. And what happens at night? You get sleepy at night. And so, you know what? They, they went to sleep. Now, what happens when you sleep? You dream. We go, no, I don't dream. I always talk to people. No, I don't dream. Yeah, you do. Okay, I'm sorry to, to burst your bubble. Everybody dreams. Uh, you get your most dream during rapid eye movement time. It's called REM sleep, and usually happens about four times a night, uh, 75, 100 minutes apart. And, and that's when you, your dreams are the most vivid. You're dreaming all night, though. You're thinking about stuff all night. But you got to know something right now. you got to remember, dreams are dreams, and reality is reality. Dreams are not reality. They're dreams. When we dream, we move out of the realm of consciousness, of reality, and we move into the realm of what? Fantasy. Now, dreams can be good or dreams can, can be bad, but in all cases, dreams are not real. How many times do you have your kid run into you, you know, at night when they were little and say, Mommy, I had a terrible day. Honey, don't worry. It's not real. The monster isn't real. It could be good. It could be bad. You could be heading down the road in your car and have a smile on your face because you're dreaming that you're windsurfing down at the shore. Or you may have just enjoyed a relaxing day at the shore in the middle of your vacation, and you have a dream that you're fending off pirates, you know, and you're clashing, you know, swords. See, it could be good, it could be bad. One dream is great, one dream is bad, but in both cases, the people are responding to a dream, not to reality, not to the way things really are. Now, the Bible offers or refers to sleep in spiritual terms many times. For instance, in Romans chapter 13. Romans 13 says this. The hour has already come for you to what? Wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is already over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. What does it mean to be awake spiritually? It means to let eternal reality affect you more than temporary right? It means to let eternal reality affect us more than the temporary. What controls you? 
When your boss, when your professor tells you that what he or she thinks is more important than what Jesus thinks, how do you respond? The answer to that tells you if you're dreaming or if you're awake. When everyone tells you that you should always be happy in a continuously happy state if you're a Christian, and you know what, that's what we're aiming for, and that's what it means you know, to be awake, and, and if you're not, you're in a sleepy condition. Listen, they're telling me they don't understand life in general, and they certainly do not understand Jesus, who was the man of what? The man of sorrows who saw and felt the painful struggle of all human beings. Now, I have to tell you something. That doesn't mean... We all go around depressed. I don't think Jesus went around depressed. Depression, listen, if it's not organic in nature, there is some depression that's brought out because it's in organic in nature. If it is not organic in nature, depression is not a Christian condition. It is not a Christian condition. In a teaching on depression, Dr. Tim Keller pointed out that what's happening when we are depressed is that something is coming along and we are more aware of it. We are more aware of the potential consequences of it than the actual reality of what God is, who God is, and what he says to you. See, we're more in tune with the other stuff than with God. You got a tyrannical boss who's standing in your pathway. Maybe on the other side is your goals. And he's standing there, she's standing there, and she's, you know, got her arms like this, and you ain't going anywhere. And you know what? You're depressed. Why? Because you see her as being in charge of your story instead of God being in charge of your story. And you know what? That becomes the greater reality. That, in fact, that becomes reality. That becomes the reality. Yet that is temporary. God is real. God is permanent. Or you got people come to you and say, you know, you're a failure. Or worse yet, you know, uh, you're okay, you're mediocre, which is like, I'd rather be a failure than to be mediocre. You know, you just, you can't, you neither here, you neither, or there. And your self-image takes a major hit. Why does your self-image take a major hit? Because the temporary is affecting you more than the reality. The reality, if you're a Christian, and God comes to you and says, you are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. You are my daughter who I love. What does it mean to keep your lamps burning? It means to turn on the light. It means to say, I refuse to be more affected by dreams than I am by reality. That's what it means. People miss his coming. You know why? Because they're asleep. And they end up thinking the dream world is the real world. Well, how do I prepare for his coming? You know, I want to wake up. I want to do, you know, the right thing. I want to prepare for his coming. How do we wake up from our sleep? Maybe we're sleeping. So the question is, what does it mean to be ready? Some, you know, had not prepared adequately. Five of them had not. It's all about being prepared. So how do we do that? Well, I think there's four things that I want to bring out right now, how we get prepared. Number one, do things that will feed reality thinking. Do things that will feed reality thinking. It means, as Craig Groeschel, the last speaker at Friday's Leadership Summit, says, we need to talk to ourselves and remind ourselves what is really true and what is really, really real. See, we have to remind ourselves that. It's saying the only rewards that are worth striving for are eternal rewards. Those are the ones that are kept in heaven where neither moth or rust can go in and destroy 
See, it's absorbing persecution. It's absorbing rudeness and saying, who cares what the board, who cares what the neighbor, who cares what my sibling, what the world says to me. The reality is I'm a child of the king and he loves me. See, that's reality. That's being awake. That's uh, feeding reality thinking. That is what it means to trim your lamps. Everything else is living in a dream world. Are you living in a dream world? Are you more comforted? Listen. Are you more comforted or do you enjoy yourself more paging through a closed catalog than paging through the Bible? Are you more comforted by thoughts of your vacation than thoughts of meeting him on that great day when he returns? Which is it? The mercies and the grace of God are real, and when we cling to them, we show that we are living in reality. We are living and breathing and working and loving in the light. Those are solid things. That's what it means to be awake. And we need to continually grasp onto who Jesus is and what he has promised for those who love and abide in him. And when he begins to fade, listen, when he begins to fade from our consciousness, you know what happens to us? We slip back into the darkness. That's why we need friends who are reminding us of the reality of Christ, those who are going to encourage us. This is why we try to shove everybody into life groups that we're going to be talking about in just a couple of weeks now. This is why you need to not think that social media, who has its own version of reality, is the real world. And the rest of us are, you know, that's reality. It's not reality. That's a dream world. That is how we keep the lamp trimmed and burning because it will burn out if we don't. The self-pity cannot stand in front of that. The depression can't stand in front of it. The resentment can't stand in front of it. Your lamps will keep burning. Second, second, make sure you know him. Make sure you know Jesus. Jesus talks to other people in the scripture who thinks who think they're ready, they think they really know him. You know, you know, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that Matthew 7 passage, you know, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Do not do miracles in your name? Blah, 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 blah. And he gets to the end, and what does he say? I never, I never knew you. I never knew you. People will say that they did great things in Jesus' name, but he never knew them because they never really knew him. They never understood his heart. They never entered into relationship with him. They went through the motions of a relationship. They went through the motions of knowing him, but they never really cared for the things that he cared for. The five foolish virgins, by the fact that they had not prepared for the groom's arrival, gave clear evidence that they did not know him. Hey, they had one job. All right? He got one job. I always tell the dads at the weddings, Okay, Dad, you know, he, he was walking his daughter down, down the aisle. He said, Dad, you got one thing. Walk down the aisle, don't trip, don't drag her down, don't do anything like that. And here's your big thing. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? And this is your moment in the light. All you got to say is, her mother and I, that's it. That's your whole job. Then you're done. You sit down. We don't care what happens to you. We just want you to get down the aisle. We want you to say that, that one phrase. That's all we want. It's the one thing he's got to do. See, they had one thing to do, the bridesmaids. One stinking thing. Take the light and lead the procession. And they weren't ready. They weren't ready. They weren't prepared. If the groom showed up 15 minutes earlier, they might have been ready. 
They were ready as long as the groom came in their time frame, when they expected him to come. They had prepared for him to come right away. He didn't show up right away, so he was delayed. So what happens? They weren't ready. Their actions would have been considered in that culture as not only a foolish thing, but as an insult to the groom and the bride and all the relatives as well. Well, here's the point. Here's the point. There are a lot of people going through the motions of religion. You know, they, you know, we got the Jesus thing figured out. You know, it's a, I get it, I get it, I get it. As long as he sticks to my script, as long as he's the loving God that provides for me and mine and all the things I determine are necessary for my life and my happiness on planet Earth, you know what? Great. You got a great understanding going there. That's not a relationship. That is not a relationship. The five foolish virgins wanted to be part of the celebration, but they had no relationship with the groom. They did not have a relationship with the groom, and their lack of being ready is evidence of that fact. Do you know Jesus, or do you just know about him? Do you have a relationship with the living God? Knowing Jesus means that you've come to a place that you know that there is no one else and nothing else that can deal with your sin problem. That Jesus Christ had to go to the cross to take, not his punishment, to take my punishment upon himself, to remove the guilty verdict that was hanging over my head at that very moment and would have hung over my head for all eternity. And he gives us the righteousness of Christ. And we come to him through faith and we say, I want to live a different kind of life. He is saying, if you know me, you'll know that. You'll understand that. When he says, I don't know you, he's saying you have never come to the place where you understand that. You may, you may look like you have, you may look like you do, but you really don't know me. You've never trusted me as evidenced by your life, and you are not prepared. What does it mean to be ready? It means agreeing with what Jesus said about how my sin must be dealt with. Third thing, don't rely on the preparation of others. Don't rely on the preparation of others. Being ready also means that you know that you can't rely on the preparations that others have made. When it comes to spiritual preparedness, you can't borrow from someone else. You know, the other version seems very cruel. Say, you know what, go find your own oil. Seems, sounds very cruel. But it's not enough for them to say, you know what, oh, you know, we'll help you out. It doesn't work that way. It's a relationship with the groom that matters. You know, it's, if, if a husband says, you know what, uh, I don't really get the whole thing, but my wife does. So, you know what, I'm kind of like, you know, every now and then, you know, pulling her close because she gets the whole Jesus thing down. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't. That's not the way it works. You cannot rely on the relationship of others that they have with the groom. But what's the term that, you know, God has no uh, grandchildren? Just sons and daughters, no grandchildren. Everyone must come on their own. Fourth thing, last thing. Start willingly living under the king's authority. Start willingly living under the king's authority. Being ready means willingly living under kingdom rules and kingdom authority. It's part of what it means to be ready. The world's way of living revolves around another kingdom, another world. The prince of this kingdom is Satan, and he wants us to live under his rules, under his system of living, and it brings death, and it brings destruction, and it brings heartache. To bring to yourself as much pleasure as you can grab and hold on to, that's what his 
desire is to just, you know, here's where the pleasure is. But Jesus said, you know what? My kingdom is another type of kingdom. It doesn't look like anything that the kingdom of this world looks like. James said this in James 4.4. Friendship with the world is what? Enmity toward God. See, the two kingdoms, they're in opposition to one another. Kingdom people see the value of God's kingdom, and they're willing to give up everything to gain it. People matter to God, especially lost people. And you know what people who aren't lost do? They are willing to lay down their preferences for the sake of others. See, those are kingdom. Those are heavenly rules. That is an indication that the king and his authority has invaded our life. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives rules for kingdom living. And everything is so different. In the world system, lust is not a problem. It's encouraged. Hate, all these other things. Anger, you know, leads to retaliation. According to the, his rules, we love our enemies. We pray for our enemies. Even when they hurt us, the world says, forgive, get back at them. We say, you know what? We're going to forgive seven times 70. We're not going to get back at them. The world encourages just the opposite. Whatever you read in scripture, the world is encouraging just the opposite. And you know what? The world is living in a dream world. They're living in a dream because it's not the real world. We have an entirely different view of wealth. Satan's kingdom says get as much as you can, use it as many times as you can. Discover Card had a commercial a few years ago. It said this, we are a nation of consumers, and there's a lot of cool stuff out there, but it's easy to get carried away. So put it on your Discover Card. Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth. Store up for yourself treasure where? In heaven, the two kingdoms are in opposition to each other. Part of what being ready is, is being ready to live according to kingdom rules, according to the king's authority. The categories could go on and on and what it means to live in God's kingdom. The point is that life is made to be lived differently in God's kingdom than in the kingdom of this world. Kingdom life is learning to be ready for the arrival of the king. To live differently than the rest of the world. Here's somebody. They say, I'm lonely. The only way I'm going to keep this relationship is if I sleep with him. If I sleep with her. I know what the king says, but I'm lonely. Or somebody says, listen, I have, I have to make ends meet. I know I shouldn't be lying to achieve this business goal, but a man's got to live. I have to. You really believe this is going to happen after 2,000 years? See, Peter knew the score. He understood it. People would come and make fun and scoff and say, you still believe this thing about Jesus coming back? And he says this in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. You, here it is, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to what? Come to repentance. You know what this time is? This is in between time. This is grace time. This whole concept of slowness is relative. The other day I was driving behind a guy. He was going 10 miles under the speed limit. 10 miles under the speed limit. What are they, crazy? What are they, nuts? What are they, from another state? They must, you know, they got to be from Ohio or something. They can't be from New Jersey. They're driving 10 miles under the speed limit. If you want to test your patience, have to get somewhere, and the guy in front of you is driving 10 miles under the speed limit. But you know what? But I'm sure that he thought 
He's driving, man, he's out for a drive. This is the way we drive, you know. Let's try to see what plate, what's the plate he has. Uh, you know what? God's concept of slowness is a lot different than ours. God's perspective is different than ours. What seems to be forever for us is really not long and eternal perspective. So he says to live as though Jesus is coming back today. Plan as though he's not coming back for 100 years, but live as though he's coming back this afternoon. If you know and love Jesus and your desire is to live under kingdom authority, okay, uh, keep striving. Keep moving. It's just too hard. I can't do it. Keep going. Keep going. Keep fighting. Let me encourage you to persevere. Continue to be ready. Continue to watch. Continue to wait. Stick with it. Jesus is coming back. Galatians 6, 9 says this. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Persevere. Stick with it. Jesus is coming. In Revelation, he says, surely I am coming soon. Are you ready? Are you ready? We need to think about perseverance and respect to our Christian faith. Whether in the privacy of our home or in the apartment, we're in our girlfriend's apartment or in the recesses of our mind, live so that we will not be ashamed to meet the Lord. The dream is that we think that is what we need to be fulfilled and happy. But real happiness comes when you are following the king's words, because all other dreamy choices will lead to heartache and will lead to ashes, and your life will end in ashes. It's right there in Matthew 24, 27. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth. He will dress himself to serve, will have them recline a table, and will come and wait on them. Some of you are being tempted to impurity. Some of you are being tempted this very moment to dishonesty. You know why? It's because you're sleepy. It's because some things look so darn good and so solid to you, and the promises of God seem, they seem like the dream. But the opposite is true. True. That's not the way it is. Wake up. Trim your lamps. Jesus is coming back to receive those and only those who have prepared for his coming. So wake up. Get ready. Jesus is coming soon. Father, we thank you for this great truth of the Christian faith that Jesus will come back in like manner as he left. They saw him leave. We're going to see him come back. And uh, that much is sure. We are positive of that. And when he comes, he will take all those with him, O oh God, who have prepared to receive him, who have prepared for the coming of the king. We pray that we would be so prepared, oh God, in this church, that people would look at us and they would see our light shine. It would shine before men, that we at the Crossing Church would be a city on a hill, oh God, that when people see it, they see Jesus Christ. We pray that we would be salt in a putrefying community, oh God. Everything around us is rotting. We pray that we would be, you know, that salt that kind of stems the rot of our culture, oh God. Help us to know the difference between being awake and being asleep, oh God. Let us be fully awake and ready for the King's return. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.